My dear listeners, lately I've been thinking a lot about the use of health IT systems and medical record platforms, and specifically how they've evolved over the last few decades. Medical professionals usually don't get to decide on which software they can use at work. In order to fulfill their responsibilities in a clinical setting, we expect the technicians, staff, nurses, and doctors to use whatever is in their disposal to get the job done. Thousands of companies have tried to enter this market and only few have been able to continuously innovate to keep up with the disruptors. Currently, there's only a couple of electronic medical record companies serving over half the entire market. Does that mean they are the best of the best that's out there? Perhaps, or perhaps the new innovative products are still out there looking for disruptive partners to scale with. Improving health data input and data computation are major factors for improving our healthcare system as a whole. Let's focus on standards and open source as much as possible. The future business strategies for EMRs need to consider data decentralization and interoperability for them to be successful. I'm excited to share with you episode 97 with Jordan Ritchie, CEO of AI Medica. Jordan and I discuss the role of biomedical informatics in an ever-evolving data-driven world. AI Medica is taking data from your electronic health record and creating actionable insights for providers. We also talk about how Web3 and blockchain play a role in health data management. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Our guest today is Jordan Ritchie, co-founder and CEO of AI Medica, a company using AI to make medical record data more valuable and easier to understand. Jordan holds a PhD in biomedical data science informatics and has written about the use of blockchain in EMR systems. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I'm so glad that you can uh, join me today. I think there's so much we have to talk about, so I'm just going to dive right in and ask you the first question, which is to sort of give a background about your career so far and, and, your, and your studies and your research and what you do now day to day. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm a tech CEO. My background is in software development, user design. I do a lot of work with uh, a number of different technologies. I'm a big Python JavaScript fan, but I've spent some time with some front-end frameworks as well. I don't do much of that anymore, but, but it was great experience and helps me. I rely on it quite a bit day to day now. I've always been really interested in life sciences and healthcare. Just even from a really young age, it's just been, I've always been a mathy science guy. I got into genomics and genetics in college and started studying that front. I did, I spent time at a company called Two Genomic. We did a genomic analysis for patients with rare genetic diseases. Uh, and that was really, that was an exciting start. 
uh, right out of my undergrad. I went to Myriad Genetics after that. This was where all my software development background experiences. At Myriad Genetics, I decided I didn't want to die behind a desk writing software that nobody was going to notice or care about in the next you know couple of years or anything. So I was I looked at some PhD programs and I've discovered biomedical informatics, which is kind of a larger parent of bioinformatics. Oftentimes people kind of conflate those two, but biomedical informatics encompasses not just the genetics and genomics, but also gets into things like telemedicine and consumer health informatics and health informatics and lots of other fields that are, in my opinion, just as interesting or even maybe more interesting at times than strictly that genetics and genomics, bioinformatics space. So lots of really interesting opportunities there. And that was, so I went to the Medical University of South Carolina to get my PhD and just discovered a whole world of data and informatics there that I've fallen in love with. Uh, I got particularly interested in electronic health record systems. I think there's so much potential for what those systems can deliver to patients, providers, health systems. And so much of that space is underdeveloped. The data is underutilized. The user experiences need to be improved. And I think Web3 has just tremendous potential to disrupt and redirect how that whole space operates and works uh, in redistributing clinical and economic value of data back to patients, to providers, um, and, and to health systems. So after my PhD, I got connected with a physician out west. His name is Adam Robison. He's a hospitalist at St. Luke's Health System. And he had founded AI Medica in 2019. And, you know, he has a clinical appointment and he, you know, does a couple of things with the hospital system. He just holds a leadership position. And he realizes, like, I don't, I don't need another job running this company. And so he and I connected. It was love at first sight. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, we were both like, holy cow, we CDHR the same way. We want to do the same stuff, make it valuable. And 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 so we he brought me on as the CEO and, and it's been a ride. It's been great. Awesome. Thanks for that background information. And also thanks for explaining to the audience the difference, even briefly, about the difference between biomedical informatics and just bioinformatics. And it sounds like biomedical informatics is more broadly applicable uh, as a science. And then bioinformatics is more specific to genetics genomics and genomics yep that's exactly right got it cool i appreciate that and you know it's been interesting you mentioned ehrs there's been some consolidation recently especially with the announcement of the approval of oracle acquiring cerner which is a pretty big deal it's a 28 billion dollar acquisition and we'll see what happens out of that hopefully it's a good thing for patients and providers but i mean we'll see and i hope so you have any initial thoughts or opinions about that i don't know i'm i th- i think time will tell here epic is the is the market winner and most of almost in fact everybody that i talk to in the health systems and physicians that I, that I connect with they're either already using epic or they're switching from cerner to epic i have yet to meet someone who's switching from epic to cerner so I, maybe that tells you a little bit of something about how the market feels that's fair so when i was doing research about you and, and the company uh, actually, specifically about you, I noticed you did some missionary work teaching English in Thailand. And I just thought that was pretty cool. Wanted to kind of just learn about, learn from you, like what you took out of that experience. And if you can share any stories, that'd be really interesting, I think. 
course. Yeah, I'm I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we serve missions, two-year missions, where we put in papers, they give us a calling to a, to a community in a country. And so I received a call to go serve in Bangkok, Thailand, um, and it changed my life. It was an amazing experience. I was, I stood out like, you know, I, I stand six foot five, big pasty white guy. You know, and, and the ties were just, uh, you know, they're they're typically a bit bit shorter, and you know, they're very different phenotypically, obviously. And so I I stood out pretty bad, but it was super fun to be there. The ties are some of the kindest people you'll ever meet. I mean, they'll they'll give you the shirts off their back if you ask them. They just they're they're amazing people. But had lots of opportunities to serve, and we we did work in the community, and especially in some of the rural kind of out in the middle of nowhere communities. You know, we got to go out and paint a big school and all the children got involved and some of the Thai monks, uh, the Buddhist monks came and got involved as well as this really cool group of, of people with paintbrushes and, you know, just painting this school out in the middle of the jungle. So lots of really great experiences. I could, I could talk for a long time about my mission, but I appreciate that. It's glad you were able to, and I'm sure lots of people benefited from that school as well. I hope. So first question I have here is really what drove you to the healthcare world? You sort of mentioned that a little bit. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I just, I was always drawn there, I, but I struggled with the concept of becoming a doctor. I, I didn't think I wanted to be a medical doctor. And I'll admit, as I got older, some of that reticence probably was just around the crushing amount of debt that you kind of have to take on to go to medical school. That That deterred me a bit, but I also... I don't know. I just, I didn't feel like that was my path. And I'm so glad that I didn't too. I, I was, I was pretty interested in biology. You know, that led me to genetics, genomics. I was a lab rat for a while. I fished pipettes and discovered the intersection of computers and health and biology and realized that there's a tremendous amount of potential, tremendous amount of good that can be done. And at the end of the day, that's what I really, I realized what I really wanted was I just, I wanted to create value for patients and for providers. I wanted to alleviate suffering. And this I, this really seemed like my avenue to do it. Right. I also had that initial dream of actually sort of becoming a doctor that I changed my mind. And I thought what I can do in business could be more scaled to more people more quickly, as opposed to working with physicians one at a time. Again, you know, everyone's got their own story and, and path, but it's, it's interesting how we land where we are, right? Totally. And I have all the respect in the world for the doctors who took on the debt and went and did the work to become physicians. But now that I am where I am now and I have the skill set that I have, I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't uh, go that doctor route, end up in a hospital somewhere working on-call late shifts. I'd rather just try and make their lives easier. Yeah. And I think a lot of us in the industry are, are working towards that. I think nurses, doctors, any healthcare professional really has been really hit hard, especially the last few years with COVID underappreciated a bit potentially depending on where you are so yeah any technology that can help this or help them really would be welcomed i'm sure and you've done a lot of research you've published papers uh, articles on a variety of things including you know using health information technology for cancer genetic counselors as well as using a chat bot to assess cancer risk so it's been it's been interesting just kind of zooming through your your profile here so all that said i'm kind of interested how you first learned about blockchain technology yeah web3 was 
uh, my first brush with Web3 technology was Bitcoin. That's probably true for, for, for most people, or many people. And I actually, yeah, I remember where I was when I learned about it. I was on a family retreat. We were at snowmobiling in Idaho and my my dad had actually talked to me about it. He just mentioned it and he was telling me about Bitcoin mining and the concept of cryptocurrency. And and he just said, Yo, you should really take a look at this because you've got a technical background. This this might be interesting to you. And he started to describe a little bit about, you know, how it was a distributed database. And and I remember at the time I was extremely skeptical. What does your dad do? My dad is an entrepreneur. He has a PhD in political economics. Um, an MBA. He's uh, a big business guy right now. He's um, the CEO of SimbaChain, which is a Web3 platform company. They basically make it really easy for you to develop against Web3 using Web2. They've got a really uh, an interesting technology. There. And they also do a number of NFT marketplaces for sports sports groups and, and other folks. So they've got some cool things going on there. But He's always got his thumb on the pulse. You know, a new technology comes out. He's usually aware of it. So he's back in 2017. He was working in a, in a similar space there and, and learned about Bitcoin. He was telling me about it. And it was just super fascinating to me. But I was really skeptical at the time. It took me a couple of years before I really went and was like, all right, let's figure out what this is and dove in and kind of got familiar. Yeah. When you first hear about Bitcoin, it's sort of like, yeah, right. I'm sure that's not going to happen. There's no way that money is being replaced by some decentralized protocol. Interestingly, that that didn't bug me as much, actually. Um, I I totally could buy into the concept of a digital currency. Yeah, that that didn't bother me at all. What 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 I got hung up on was this idea of a distributed database because it sounded like from the way it was explained to me, and actually, really, it was probably the way that I misunderstood it uh, was that somehow everybody was maintaining their own personal copy of the database. And I just remember thinking, like, how, how are you doing that from a storage standpoint? Like, even the big database, not everybody can hold, you know, if it gets big, you know, gigabytes or terabytes worth of data in one place, it's like, that's crazy. But that's not what's going on, obviously. It's a record of the transactions that, that, are, that are occurring. And it's that record keeping, that really, that shared record keeping that's trans or that's tamper resistant is really what makes blockchain so valuable. And I just that whole concept, it took me, it took me a minute to really dive in and understand. Like I had to go, I had to go a bit deep technically, I guess, to really kind of wrap my head around what was happening. Yeah. And what you know, when you were thinking about all this and how potentially blockchain could be used for a distributed or shared database in healthcare or in EHR specifically, you know, I'm sure you thought about how EHRs have developed over the last few decades and try to see the trends on how blockchain would get incorporated or integrated. You know, any initial thoughts you had when you first learned about it and then did you change your mind at all or anything like that? The, the first time I heard about it, I, I immediately began thinking about it in the context of healthcare. It's, you know, it's where my head always is. And I had all kinds of questions around. I was like, we're all sharing the database, you know, and that means that, you know, what, what, do you, what does that mean for HIPAA? What does that mean for privacy? What does that mean for all these different things? And as I started to learn more about how the technology worked and really what the value add is, I mean, at, at its, the best definition that I've found of, of blockchain is just a tamper-resistant shared record-keeping technology. And if that's not an electronic health record system, I don't know what is. I mean, because at the end of the day, electronic health records are, inherently need to be shared and 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 that's a huge component and it's a huge pain right now a huge pain point for 
um, hospitals and physicians to stay compliant with HIPAA because they're managing the data uh, and they have to get the patient's consent and they have to, you know, informed consent is a big deal. And there's a lot of work that goes into it. And, you know, people need access to this data for various reasons, you know, for whether it's clinical trials or just straight up treating the patient. And the way that healthcare data is siloed across the healthcare industry, that's really challenging. The interoperability is, is still has a long way to go in the healthcare space. And as soon as I realized that blockchain technology has the potential to reorient data around patients, as in the data is not just linked to the hospital that created it, but is inextricably linked to the patient whose data it is, that has huge implications for treatment for uh, knowledge discovery, for health outcomes, for economic value that can be generated from that data. There's all kinds of upsides to how we manage that data. And right now, electronic health records don't take advantage of that paradigm at all, right? They silo everything away. And, and everybody knows that when you break something down you know, into its individual parts, it's less than the sum of those parts when you put them all together. Yeah, and it's interesting how policies and, and government regulation was involved to sort of help with those data silos. You know, we had health information exchanges and highways to make the data across different states or within states, actually, more efficient. There's varying degrees of success in, with those cases and projects. Now, I don't know really how they're doing, to be honest, but I think the trend is not good from what I see. I don't know if you have a different opinion. Specifically about the government's efforts to encourage interoperability? No, I guess specifically about health information exchanges. Yeah, I, th I think HIEs are um, dead. <laughs> I, I don't know. They just they seem like a Band-Aid, right? They're, they're not really... It, it's their health information exchange. Really, at the end of the day, they're just more centralized repositories, right? It's almost like we've just... We've created a, a multi-organizational centralized organization and... It's a misnomer. It's the same way that when we talk about centralized architecture, like I, you know, the the EHR was supposed to, you know, do, was centralizing data in one location. Yeah, but that one location is itself separate from other centralized locations. So, like, you know, Epic implemented at one hospital and Epic implemented at another hospital are separate databases. That's a centralized architecture, right? And when you have those two different centralized locations, then what's central? Well, neither of them are central, right? Now they're fragmented. That's where the crux of this problem is. And that's what Web3 promises to help us overcome. Because as soon as you center that data around the patient, it doesn't matter if the patient goes to a different health system or a different doctor's office. The data lives with the patient, moves with, changes with the patient, right? And so now when you go to a different health system, your data comes with you. And when your data comes with you, the doctor has much more uh, information to work with. And when the doctor has more information to work with, he knows what knowledge to apply. And now we approach the top of that triangle, right? If you've seen that, you know, that pyramid, it's got a bunch of, it's, it's the D-I-K-W pyramid. It's really, yeah, really creative, but really, I'm totally, data on the bottom, information, and then knowledge in the top triangles, wisdom, right? Yeah. Most of healthcare lives somewhere in the data information space, right? We've produced a lot of knowledge from that information and that data, but that last step up to that top triangle wisdom, we're, we're kind of bad at it. It's tough. <laughs> and I think AI is going to have a big role in, you know, that knowledge and wisdom portion. Maybe not so much the top of the wisdom, but at least part of it, I think, because it's going to enable us to gather a lot of data in a way that's 
not even just gather, but like analyze data in a way that can, you know, drive insights for, for providers. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting, I, I'm so I better preface. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of AI and machine learning, incredibly powerful tool, but AI and ML is only as valuable as the data that you put into it. Because at the end of the day, these things aren't magic. They're just processes. And what we've learned is that if you give these processes data, they'll tell you something. But whether or not what they tell you is meaningful or accurate is a completely different discussion. So the age-old adage, adage, garbage in, garbage out, holds true. And unfortunately, of the vast majority of data that we're working with in the electronic health record system is garbage. <laughs> it's not consistent. It's not standardized. It's got all kinds of holes and problems. requires tons of data cleaning. I mean, even for clinical trials, they spend tons and tons of money to gather data and clean it and validate it. And even then, it's probably still not super high quality. And so will AI ML have serious implications for helping us make the jump from knowledge to wisdom and also in producing knowledge? I, I, I think so, yes. But we have to be really careful about when you hold a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And there's a great deal of AI ML out there these days that is maybe not providing the value that it could if the data were better. So I'm a huge proponent of it, but but I'm skeptical of a lot of the application that I see. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, you know, we're still at the beginning of utilizing the or getting the benefits of AI in healthcare. I think it's still pretty early. And there's so many aspects of it. There's clinical level AI. There's just financial level AI for for healthcare too, you know, to make administration and insurance more effective. So there's different ways to look at it. But tell me, I'm curious, AI Medica, what's the mission? What's the vision? Yeah, AI Medica is just, it's all about simplifying access to EHR data. Right now, not only is data in EHR super siloed, but it's highly inaccessible. And there's, there's an interesting tug and pull that sort of explains this, but I don't know if you ever... Have you ever heard of his name? Steve Yege. He's a de- he was a developer for Amazon, and then he went to Google. He wrote this brilliant post about security versus access, and these two things are in, in constant balance with each other. The post itself, you should go look it up and read it. In fact, anybody listening, go look it up and read it. Especially if you're interested in the technical space, it's a it, he's very engaging. It's a hilarious read. But it's super informative and still very, very relevant to today. And he makes the point in there that security and access are two sides of the same coin. And if you dial security all the way to the top, you have no access, you have no product. And right now, EHRs are dangerously high on security and very, very low on access. It's incredibly difficult to produce a product that's even really worth using if you can't access the data that makes the product work. Right. Or, or if the data that makes the product work is really, really bad, which is kind of a position that we find ourselves in currently. And so there has to be this balance between being able to access that data and do meaningful things with it to drive the utility of the product itself. And so AI Medica makes the realization that there's a ton of data inside the electronic health record that has lots of potential to drive better health outcomes, better physician experience more efficient hospital systems. The moat or barrier to entry is just very high, right? But we've figured out how to gain access. We've integrated with industry standards and gotten into the right platforms and created a process that allows us to deliver very quickly calculators and tools that 
push data to the physicians rather than forcing them to go pull and dig out of the EHR. I don't know if you know this, Ray, but physicians spend close to and sometimes over half of their time doing things in the HR, documenting or hunting for data. And because that time is, they spend so much time doing that and the pain is so high, there's so much burnout around using it. The reality is that they just don't look up a lot of the data that they need to, to plug into the calculators they need to calculate in order to patient. They don't have time for it. They can't. And so they make their best assessment, which is, is still a really good assessment. You know, they're physicians, they went to medical school, they know how to treat their patients, but there's a lot that we can do to push data to physicians so that they can make really, really optimal decisions based on studies that have been done around data, you know, large cohorts of studies that have shown how to improve outcomes, right? Right. Even the best doctor in the world can't read all the, you know, academic research that goes on every day. So it's, it's tough, that's right? Yeah. And it's not just being abreast of the existing research that's been done, but it's also being responsible for an enormous amount of data that's being shoved into the EHRs. It's almost like the EHRs have become a well and we throw lots of stuff down the well, but there isn't really a great way to retrieve the stuff we huck down the well. And so as soon as it goes into the well, it effectively becomes either very difficult to retrieve or just useless altogether. And that's not a great paradigm for a physician who relies on that data and is responsible, culpable for that data. So they need help. There's lots we can do. Yeah, that's interesting. So instead of having all these data become artifacts in your history and like never to be used again, really, or not often, we can take these data points and turn them into pieces of a puzzle to help create the optimal puzzle for you or the optimal treatments or whatever for you. AI Medica has a few products in its suite. I looked it up on your website. There's AI Calc, AI Code, AI Note, AI Patient, AI Health, and AI Med. Can you briefly describe each of those? I'm just curious to kind of get a definition and, you know, it'll help the audience kind of understand in greater depth what you do. Absolutely. I think I'll, I'll, I'll probably talk about our first two most in depth here. A AI Calc is our flagship product. Platform building 101, you know, you start with a killer app, right? AI Calc is our killer app. And, and the real value of AI Calc is that we can, we can push data from the EHR to the physicians rather than making the physicians go in and find the data themselves. And we do that in the context right now of evidence-based calculators. So a little clinical decision support 101, there are research studies that have been done where huge amounts of data have been taken from electronic health record systems, for example, sometimes across multiple institutions, sometimes at a single institution, but no matter how bad the data is, if you get a really big end number, you can say something statistically significant about it, right? So you get really big end number and then you do some math and you figure out some criteria that indicate a certain outcome or treatment is indicated, right? And these we call evidence-based calculators. And so then you boil down maybe into a handful of questions. If you answer those questions based on the patient, you can learn very quickly, here's how this patient should be treated or if this patient should be admitted to the hospital or this patient needs this medication. And that's like the knowledge that's been produced. The wisdom step is we've got to apply that knowledge, 
right? We've got to put it into practice. And this is the part where we stumble, where we fail. We don't quite get it done. And AI Calc solves that problem because we've built a system um, that can access the discrete data in the EHR using Smart on Fire to automatically run those calculators. And they're not, it's not true AI ML. So there's not like a model that you don't understand what's going on in the background. We literally are doing rule engine based calculations that are present in the literature that people are aware of. You can look them up and see exactly what we're doing. But the value is that we can push it to the physician without them having to, to think about it, right? We can look at the problem list and be like, hey, this patient has atrial fibrillation. We should probably run Chad's VASC and has blood calculators, right? Or, hey, this patient has cirrhosis. We should probably fire off a MELD score, right? And then we can run it. And once those calculators run, not only do they run, but we can also pull the data from the chart and auto-populate those fields. So it's, it's, we've literally reduced what is minutes of to to many minutes of a physician's time per patient clicking around and trying to get from the right website, you know, pull the data from the HR, run the calculator in some other app somewhere, and then pull that, plug it back into the HR. We've reduced all of that to a button click. So a physician clicks a button, it knows exactly what to run. It runs, it pulls the data over. The physician just has to look at it. And then they can click a button, it'll copy it into their note. Right. So that's AI count. And is that now integrated into an EHR system already? And like, is there a special installation that needs? Yeah, you want to talk yeah, about? It's, yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. And this is part of what this is part of the value add. So we're we're installing right now with St. Luke's Health System in Idaho. We're going to go live in their production environment this summer, I think. And they've been they've been outstanding. They're our development partner, and they've just they've been a fantastic organization to work with. Very innovative, very forward thinking, and we are built on something called. Uh, smart on fire on the Epic on Epic's app. Smart on fire is not specific to Epic's app orchard. It's itself a standard. The Epic's app, Epic's app orchard relies on smart on fire. And all that means is that healthcare is using APIs finally. And so we integrate with these APIs that are accepted across the healthcare space. It makes it very, very easy and straightforward for us to deploy, to install. Instead of a big, long custom integration, and custom mapping, it's like you download an installation file and a week or two later, you're in the environment and up and running. It's it's very quick and we require little, little support on, like a lot of these implementations require a lot of support from the hospital, right? They're expected to provide resources and developers and testers. And we don't need a lot of that stuff because we have a very small footprint and we're very, very compliant with Smartifier. Awesome. Thanks for that. I think the next product you were going to talk about was AI code. Yeah, then AI code. So AI code, and so it builds off of AI calc. And so this is platform building 102, right? You, you, your next apps are, are built off of your first one, right? And they integrate and interplay. So AI code is, is, is similar to AI calc in that it can push um, data to physicians. But this is actually, an int- we, we found something interesting here, which is that there's a, a problem that exists in healthcare that is a bit nuanced, but lies at the heart of how physicians and hospitals get paid and how data around disease burden at the hospitals track. And it comes down to how do you, the real question is, how do you accurately take the work that a physician does and characterize it electronically? How do you code it, right? If a patient comes in and sees multiple physicians, how do you ensure that the record that comes down matches And right now, it's a huge problem because if a patient comes into a hospital 
and sees any one of five doctors, the note and the coding isn't going to match the coding specifically. And if the coding doesn't match, that means that the reimbursement that's coming back to the hospital isn't going to be the same. And more importantly, perhaps, it means that there's inconsistency in the way that the disease burden is characterized across the hospital, which has huge population health implications because now you're making decisions about a disease burden that's not accurate, right? And that's trouble. So what we said is, and, and, and it's not a new problem. There's lots of tools out there that are looking to, to solve this problem, but it usually gets solved on the back end. And so you end up with a department of medical coders who aren't doctors themselves, who really their whole job is to like, decipher CMS, poor souls, right? And what, what that ultimately means is that they're going to be pestering physicians with emails like, hey, you coded this patient this way, but did you mean this or this? Or what about this? And the physician's like, you know, getting off of a 25-hour shift and they've been seeing patients all night long. And they're like, I don't know, I'm tired. The first one, right? And it's not an optimal code, right? You end up again with an, in, an inconsistent disease burden characterization and variable defensibility when you go to the to the insurance companies and say, reimburse us for this care, right? And so we looked at this and said, gosh, you know, physicians really, we could really help physicians do this at the, at the outset and avoid all the downstream pain for a lot of these disease burdens just by looking at the data that's in the EHR. So take sepsis, for example. Sepsis has this very clear set of criteria that's broadly accepted for saying, yes, this patient has sepsis. But it's wrapped up in all these lab values that are buried deep in the EHR. And by deep, I mean deep. Like the UI, UX, I don't know if you've ever seen Epic in their hyperspace environment. Like, seriously, I just, I want to have a conversation with however that design became a thing because it's miserable, right? And the reality is, is that physicians, when they have a septic patient, unless the patient is really, really bad, are very likely to just code it straight sepsis because they don't have time to go verify the lab values to say, to make the distinction between sepsis and severe sepsis or sepsis and septic shock, right? Because they're going to treat the patient the same way anyway. They don't care. And the physician doesn't get paid based on that code either. They get paid based on CPT codes and other things. So you end up with this really wild and misaligned incentive between physicians and hospitals. And so we're like, okay, great. Well, let's just make this super easy and painless and defensible for physicians where we'll just implement it like a calculator and we'll combine it in tandem with the evidence-based calculators that physicians love. And without physicians really caring or being the wiser, we'll just turn them into expert coders. And if we turn them into expert coders, that's going to drive a whole bunch of really interesting things, right? You're going to get accurate coding, which means when you go to insurance companies, you'll have data that says, hey, this patient met these criteria. Here's the criteria. Here's the data, right? This was the right coding for this particular patient. You're also going to get consistent disease burden characterization. Means as a hospital or a health system, you're going to be able to look at your population and have some degree of confidence that physician A and physician B coded patient X the same way, right? Or X and Y the same way, however you want to characterize it. But the point being that all physicians are going to become a little bit more consistent about the way that they code out these patients because it'll be based on data that's in the EHR that right now is just wasted, just languishing, right? 
And we can do that for sepsis. That's what we've built it around AI code is just starting out. It's built around sepsis, but we're going to do that for a whole bunch of other diseases. We can do this for diabetes. We can do it for uh, acute kidney injury. We can do it for those are the list of them that we have in our backlog that we want to develop and build out. And we, and we think that putting these two things together, AI calc and AI code really are kind of a, a one-two punch because it's going to incentivize your physicians to, to participate because they love evidence-based or they love evidence-based calculators and they want to use them and this makes it easy for them to use them right and then the AI code piece is very similar to those calculators but it lines up with what the hospitals want which is we just really need our physicians to care about coding which right now they they don't (laughs) right and so we can drive these we can really we can realign these two incentives with these two tools Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On June 24th, 2022, the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court voted to abolish the constitutional right to abortion. The 6-3 to three majority decision overturned the landmark ruling of the 1973 case Roe v. Wade, which generally protected a pregnant woman's right to choose to have an abortion. This decision is expected to have negative cascading effects across the U.S. healthcare system. Apparently, 22 out of 50 states already had trigger laws ready to outlaw abortion as soon as the decision was made. Every state is now forced to re-examine their abortion laws and policies in order to prepare for the influx of women seeking abortion clinics in neighboring states. As we can expect, this will cause a massive legal gray area since each state has different specific laws related to how late into a pregnancy an abortion can legally be performed. In addition to electronic medical record data, data from period tracking apps such as Flow and Clue may be used to identify women who may have had an abortion. Flow and other apps have already announced plans to develop anonymous mode for their users, stripping away users' names, email addresses, and other technical identifiers from their profile accounts. Furthermore, over 2,500 anti-abortion centers in the United States, which are disguised as crisis pregnancy centers, are not even subject to federal HIPAA laws. As an example, According to the terms of use on Heartbeat International's data management system, the organization can share any and all client information with any affiliates, partners, vendors, or contract organizations, or as legally necessary. According to a Time magazine article, these faith-based nonprofits now outnumber actual abortion clinics three to one. This is just the beginning of a new regulatory landscape for women's health. If we are to consider the potential value propositions of blockchain and Web3 in healthcare applications, we know that verifiable patient data privacy and better information consent management can protect women and the providers against legal liability. It's not all about the technology-based safeguards, though. Federal and state regulators also need to address how the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, permits the disclosure of protected health information when required by law, as might be the case for a woman suspected of having an abortion. Now, more than ever, HIPAA needs an upgrade that is compatible with today's technology and societal values. 
the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued guidance to the public that can help patients limit their personal data exposure online, including how to turn off location services on Apple and Android devices, and beefing up privacy settings in their internet browsers. Let's face it, we are all being tracked. Companies are unlikely to stop collecting as much information about us as they can. I believe decentralized technologies and systems can offer new solutions to these problems. If you or anyone you know is building Web3-based solutions for women reproductive care in a post-Roe nation, I would love to speak with them and learn more about their strategies while navigating this legal gray area. No government should control what you do with your own body. Check out the links in the show notes for more information. Let me know what you think in our Health Unchained Telegram community or Twitter. And now, back to our conversation with Jordan Ritchie, CEO of AI Medica. Interesting. So at St. Luke's, have physicians given you any feedback on the product so far or the application? Yes, yes. We have physicians using the tool right now, and the feedback that we've received is overwhelmingly positive. Awesome. Um, they, calc- they love using the calculators. and they, they love that they're so excited about not having to dig through jars to find it i mean some of these calculators are like you know 30 plus fields you know and and if and even if we can only automate half of those or two-thirds of those right it's a huge weight off of the physicians who are trying to use these calculators so yeah the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive they love the user experience very excited once we go live in production here and so, and, and we're going to do some analysis too around usage. We think this opens up a real, really cool opportunity to look at how evidence-based calculators are used across a population of physicians, right? And and we can look at the, you know, how frequently is this calculator run and how frequently are the outcomes for this or the scores for this calculator high or low or in the middle, right? And, and hey, we notice a spike. In this particular calculator lately, it's, you know, we've had some really high scores. What's going on? There, there's some operational intelligence that we can provide there based on the usage of those tools, which, which incidentally, that almost begins to approximate the another one of our products we're really excited about called AI Patient, which is more of a population-focused tool. But again, Platform Building 102, right? This builds off of our killer app, AI Calc. So. Interesting. I appreciate that. Do you want to dive into AI Know or AI Health, AI Patient a little bit more? Or maybe you can kind of like talk about them more like as a whole, maybe. Yeah, this uh, really what this begins to show you some of these. So AI Note, AI Med, AI Health, we have big plans for, for these products and for the directions that we want to go with them. And the real picture we're trying to paint here is platform, right? Now, these tools are going to build off of each other and are going to integrate and work together to provide a much more meaningful and powerful experience built on EHR data, right? And Epic isn't really providing that. And Cerner is not really providing that. In fact, a lot of the tools, I'll put that in quotes, tools that they provide actually really drive physicians bonkers and, and are, you know, they're, they're kind of frustrating to use. They're not well designed or they don't push good data. So we're really trying to build a platform that can use that data in a much more effective, efficient, and pleasurable way to drive better outcomes for patients, better experiences for physicians and higher efficiency, better bottom lines for hospitals. Interesting. Do you foresee the AI Medica product or application outside of App Orchard utility somehow, or will it, for at least in the foreseeable future, remain within the App Orchard? Yeah, that's a great question. Right now, uh, 
there are, what's the best way to, so we have big plans. Yes, we, we expect that we will not be just on Epic's App Orchard or even on just EHR app platforms in general. And this begins to transition quite a bit more towards some of the Web3 stuff as, as this landscape changes. The vision that we really have is, is to create and support an electronic health record platform that allows for the value, the clinical and the economic value of patient data to be redistributed across all the stakeholders. Because right now that, that, that data that's locked up in EHRs, truthfully, isn't really providing a ton of value to any stakeholder, right? I mean, maybe mostly to physicians and, and hospitals, but but so much of it even isn't benefiting them. The, the, the idea behind this whole Web3 movement is, is that we, we can extract a great deal more data total, right? And we can distribute it in a highly efficient way to patients for health outcomes and to physicians for experience and treatment, right, as they treat their patients, and, and also for health systems as they incentivize their physicians and patients to live healthier and happier lives. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask about, you know, it didn't sound like there was blockchain incorporated into AI calc and AI code just yet, but it sounds like that is in the vision and plan, and that makes sense. I mean, it's it's a, I don't think anyone should rush creating a blockchain protocol or whatever for their product. It takes time. You have to be very thoughtful. So I appreciate the the route you're taking. Yeah, we're trying to, we, we want to make sure that it's, you know, again, just because we hold a hammer, not everything is a nail, right? It's it's all about finding uh, a Dockham's razor. Let's find the, the best and simplest path forward to solve the problem. And as soon as the nail can't be moved by a simple technology. Okay, we'll, we'll get more complex when we need to be, right? Our vision really centers around the electronic health record system. Somewhere in this future, Ray, this is going to happen. The healthcare data economy is a, it's coming. It's not pretend. It's not sci-fi. It's real. There are endeavors happening as we speak that are going to bring marketplaces like this to bear. And whether that's adjustment, whether that's a, an adaptation or disruption, electronic health records are going to be a part of that. And it if I had to lean one way or the other on that, I would say if I, at some point, I think the current electronic health record market is going to be disrupted. I, I mean, I can see that happening. And my next question was actually, why do major EHR companies oppose Web3 business models? And I don't know if you have a good answer for that, but you know, my take at it would be it just can't doesn't fit into their current operations. I don't even see a way that, I guess... What do you think? I, it's, it's, it's a good question. There's uh, and there's a lot of strong feelings too. So I'm I'm going to tread carefully here. But it is pretty well known that some some high end leadership in some of these EHR vendor systems are are very opposed to patient data ownership, and that's super frustrating to me. I think that's I think that's narrow minded, and I, I I believe that you made the I think you're exactly right that these electronic health record systems, especially these vendors, are making a ton of money and if you're making a ton of money it's really hard to do something or implement something that flies in the face of your business model right and you know it's i mean this is a classic case of innovators dilemma where really some, somebody is going and i you know, I, I think it's the medica but somebody is going to eat out the bottom of of the market you know they'll catch the one percent at the bottom and then they'll catch the next one percent and they'll capture the next one percent and and eventually, it's going to get to a point where these large monolithic EHR vendor systems built on yesterday's web infrastructure will will crumble. 
right? Will give way to a new market leader. Yeah. And there's, you know, many visionaries like yourself trying to make that real. And I think that's awesome. I'm so glad that there are people like you out there doing this hard job. So thank you. And my next question is more about security and data access. You know, you talked about the, the, you know, the give and take between security and data access um, and just data breaches in general in healthcare. Now we're seeing them more and more hospitals are getting ransomware attacks, locking all their patients' data. Do you think it's getting worse? And do people care? I do. The research is pretty clear that it is, it is getting worse. It's, it's a really baffling, at least baffling to me, how this came about. You know, we have this perception that our healthcare data is Fort Knox. And it turns out that it's, like you said, there's a number of research articles I've quoted in some of the things that I've, I've written recently that I think in 2018, they did this study and, and they found that on average, there's like two breaches a day of 500 or more records. It's just like, that's, that's crazy. I mean, if you imagine you're, you know, if, if the financial institution had two or more breaches a day of 500 bank accounts, like, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine the system would persevere, right? Yet, if you, it seems to me that when I talk to friends and family and acquaintances and others, they have this perception that their healthcare data is is safe and secure. And and I think part of the reason they have that perception is because it's safe and secure from them, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. have you ever tried to access your electronic health record data? I mean, it's a nightmare. And you go to them and they're like, oh, I could fax it to you. And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, I, and, and they're like, well, here, I can print it off for you, but it's going to cost you. And they're like, it, there's, it's all kinds of weird stuff around it's like no no it's my data i should be able to access my data right right that seems natural i think think that way right and there's lots of strong feelings in the space and there are lots of regulations and laws that are at play here you know hipaa high tech and cures and others the legislation that kind of dictates a lot of this but it's it's a really weird kind of privacy paranoia that's been fomented like what would you rather a, a criminal have? A handful of x-rays from 10 years ago or your location data in frequent shopping places? Like, I, I, we get really paranoid around our healthcare information when, and, and, and I should be really careful here. Privacy is important. Security is important. I'm not saying that they're not. What I'm saying is that if you dial security all the way to the top and you shut access all the way down, at the end of the day, you end up with a product that's neither secure nor accessible. You, you have to have robust access to have a secure product almost, right? Because if, if you only have security and no access, you don't have a product. And so it's a, it's a hallmark. If you have a product or a, or a space that has really low accessibility, you can predict that the security is probably not great either. And that's exactly what we have in healthcare. The evidence of that's all over the place, right? We're hemorrhaging data records, from, from a security standpoint, and it's not an accessible product. Right. And another topic that I think people talk about in this space is whether or not the value of our health data, not just individually, but as a collective, can the value of our collective health data be used to subsidize the overall cost of our healthcare in a way where we wouldn't necessarily have to pay for any health insurance premiums. All the data we generate through our experience in medicine, through like clinical experience, will go into research, which will you know pay for that data, for example. Do you think that's possible? 
I love this question. I do think it's possible. I think that, and, and interestingly, when you think about the people who really, really need help with healthcare costs, these are people who have either rare diseases or catastrophic diseases. You know, we're talking about cancer, we're talking about really terrible chronic conditions. It's a bit morbid to think this way, but essentially, the more health data you generate and the more unique that data is, the more valuable it is, right? And and so if if we put mechanisms in place that value that data at its at how valuable it actually is, this is just supply and demand, right? If you have unique healthcare data, that means the supply of your type of healthcare data is probably low, which means the demand for it is going to be relatively high, which means that if you have a rare disease and you're struggling to pay your bills, your data is worth more than say, your average middle-aged healthy person, right? And the other really cool thing to think about here is that data becomes valuable with longevity. A lot of research is done in kind of these like, you know, uh, moment in time research. Whereas if you do a longitudinal study, you learn a great deal, especially when you couple it with really important data points like socioeconomic factors, right? Where do you live? What kind of environment are you in? What do you eat? Do you exercise? Do you drink? Do you smoke? You know, where do you work? Do you experience a lot of stress in your life? Like there's there's all these other indicators that you can map to whatever it is that you're studying that have tremendous impact, right, on our health and our wellness and the outcomes of the study that we have a hard time capturing right now. So the longitudinal value you if you if you're if you treat your data like a like an investment, right? which I think this web idea that we're talking about creates, because now as a patient, I'm reinstated as a stakeholder in my healthcare because I have an incentive from keeping good data. I can monetize it, right? And not only can I monetize it, but I also reap the clinical value because I'm going to have a comprehensive clinical record that then anything, any AI, ML, or clinical decision support or, or other technology that's built on top of it, apps and other tools that leverage that data, which is good data, right? Good data, good outcomes, garbage in, garbage out, right? Gold in, gold out. You have good, you know, you investment in good data that you're incentivized because it's valued. Not only are you going to make an economic value back on that over time, but also a clinical, a clinical, so economic and clinical value that you can reap as an individual and as a people, as a population. And interestingly, that data then becomes an inheritance, right? Well, I mean, what, I, can you imagine if you could give your health history and everything that happened to you to your children so that yeah, now we're like building a, generational health, right? Like that's a whole cool new concept. I think that's a really cool idea. The idea of your health data being an investment, it, it's so true because the way we take care of ourselves today is sort of an investment in our future also. So being able to track that and then use it to gain insights is really awesome. I think it's really the future, <laughs> I hope. I love that idea. And I, I really do think that's going to happen. And I think it is happening. When do you think that will have, start to happen? And when will it be like the norm? Yeah, like when will we get mainstream adoption? Let me put on my profit hat here. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I I know that it is happening. It's maybe comparable to the stage of the internet where people were like, commerce, that won't become a thing. I'll never do my banking online, right? Obviously, those predictions were false. And eventually, those became very, very enormous, right? I, I think we're at that stage now. I have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And I get a wildly different set of responses to these ideas. Some people come on and they are just like, yeah, you're 
you're crazy. This will never happen. And other people come on and they're like, what's stopping this from happening? It's, it's very, it, there's not a lot of in the middle. I don't get a lot of responses where they're like, yeah, maybe. People are either very strongly emotionally against it or they're clamoring for it, right? I think we're in a, we're in a stage where it's gaining a lot of momentum. There's a lot of conversation about it. Uh, and the more you look for it, the more you'll, you'll find it too. And, and Equidium Health just launched a, with in partnership with Nokia. I right? just launched a health data, data marketplace. Yeah, data exchange. Super exciting. I, I love to see that stuff. I think that's that that's the kind of evidence. You know, they're not an isolated incidents either. That's the kind of evidence that you look for, and in in this kind of a space. Yeah, a lot going on there for sure. There is article you wrote about chatbots. I just wanted to kind of understand. Or if I can get a high level, like what role can chatbots play for improving access to healthcare? Chatbots are a unique engagement tool. They can be done really well and they can be done really wrong. So there is some care that that needs to be taken to make sure that they provide their value. But essentially, everybody hates a survey, right? Right? They're just, they're miserable. Their web forms, some of them are tedious as well. Even the best web forms are not that great. You know, like, TurboTax is probably one of the best surveys I've ever done, and it's still a pain in the butt. I hate it. Right? And so, like the chatbot is is a totally different experience because if it's done right, it it creates a a conversational experience that's very familiar to us. That that is a lot less painful. It takes a lot of that tediousness out because when you do a web form, you have to keep up both sides of the conversation, right? It's it's like you're almost kind of having to do the navigating through the conversation while holding up your end, and it just it takes a lot of brain power. And it's Nobody likes it. But the chatbot kind of takes away some of that overhead, that mental work you have to think through and do. And if you do it right, there are a lot of chatbots out there that we all hate, you know, the customer service chatbots that ask the same questions in a loop and never get you to an agent. Like that's not a good experience. Nobody wants that. But but this is how we got really great engagement while I was at the Medical University of South Carolina doing my PhD with hereditary cancer patients who we were trying to help make an assessment, you know, hey, you should consider genetic testing or genetic counseling, there's a pretty large set of questions you got to ask them to understand their family history. And, you know, how do you present that information in a way that that is not tedious, doesn't make them think? Chatbots created or, or provided a really, really valuable way for us to do that because we put together these hierarchical workflows that were just very clean, very straightforward, highly optimized. They were predictable. And it was a lot of just, you know, point click to answer the questions and pretty soon you were done and it felt like a conversation with some other person on the line and awesome yeah no i think the chatbots will as you said if they're done right it can be very useful save a lot of time save a lot of resources and i do hope that we get them sooner than i mean i haven't seen one in my experience i have actually regarding like covid testing and vaccines and stuff like that but it's not the norm i think yet but maybe soon so, you know, you've been in this space, you've talked to a lot of people for a while. What's the most important health IT opportunity that actually nobody is talking about? I, I think, um, you know, this is going to suck. We've basically been talking about a lot of it. I, I really think that the EHR is the overlooked, underappreciated opportunity. With so many people talk about the EHR like a red ocean, you know, it's a dangerous field to play in the you know the the, the road is littered with dead bodies so, you know, I, I hear so many of these arisms that people make about the electronic health record market and i mean I, I get it they're not entirely wrong but i think that what we missed here and this is one of the this is the crux of this if you really go over the ehr story how they became and uh, we're talking about a, a user 
that is, you know, takes years to really understand what they need, right? This is, you know, medical professionals undergo intensive training to take care of their patients. And, what, you know, when EHRs were originally conceived, they were built by mostly by developers and IT experts who aren't doctors, maybe were close to doctors. But even in my experience as a, as a software developer who works closely with doctors, it's really, really easy to assume in a software product, oh, the doctors will want this. And it seems to totally make sense from a UI UX perspective, from the way that you're building a tool, from a workflow, whatever. And you put it in front of the doctors and like, I hate that. And you talk to them and they have a really good reason why that you never would have guessed, right? And it's those kinds of user bases that are really hard to create good UI UX for because it's so easy to make bad assumptions. And the electronic health record UI UX was built on tons and tons of bad assumptions, right? So, so what aren't we talking about that's really important? I, I think we're talking about how do you, how do you disrupt that electronic health record vendor market and provide something that is both secure and highly accessible that's going to drive the types of outcomes and be open to the kind of technology we've discussed today, which is Web3, right? Is blockchain distributed ledger technology, right? Tamper-resistant shared record keeping. How do we... I, I, I think that's a, 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 an underrated opportunity that... That while it will require a lot of hard work, the right team and the right conditions, maybe a little bit of luck, the implications of that being successful are infinite virtually. Right. Right. And, and, and you know, there's so much work to be done still to make that a reality, I think. But you're right. The initial EHRs, they were developed not really for clinicians, it was more for billing, I think, and, and financial transactions. That's exactly right. So yep. that, you know, we have to move away from this fee-for-service mentality and user experience more towards a true value-based ecosystem. And I think Web3 is literally primed and literally <laughs> built for that. And when I say Web3, I just mean in general, all like the DLT sorts of technologies, privacy-preserving, data ownership sort of uh, abilities. And, and how important are incentives in economic psychology for healthcare tokenomics? And that's a pretty broad question. And what I guess I mean is when we look at each of the stakeholders, patients, doctors, administrators, you know, researchers, pharma companies, device manufacturers, there's so many different stakeholders in healthcare and they all have different incentives. So have you given thought about the economic psychology for healthcare tokenomics in a bit? And do you want to share anything about that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I can consider myself an expert in, in tokenomics. I probably want to talk to my dad about that one. But yeah, he's economics and tokenomics. All this stuff is 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 he's very knowledgeable. But but I will say that incentives are possibly the most important thing to consider. And healthcare is really. I don't want to use unique because it almost comes off like a good thing. It's very maybe weird in that it doesn't really obey traditional economic. True. That's a good signals, point. right? So you, you have this market that's super insulated from supply and demand, which produces all kinds of weird results and all kinds of strange things. And really what we've seen from that is it's allowed a great deal of the incentives that exist for these different stakeholders to become horribly misaligned, right? You know, you, talk, you think about the invisible hand of the economy that aligns everybody together to produce this, you know, this functioning, working, you know, society. Our healthcare society is sort of an anarchy a little bit, right? Where people can get away with and do some pretty weird stuff that doesn't obey simple economic laws. And now you have yourself in a position where you have skyrocketing healthcare costs and, you know, wild amounts of waste in the system and lots of burned out physicians, lots of sick patients. And 
and you know a heavy government regulation that's not moving the needle and just dissatisfied stakeholders all around. Well, if we can bring the incentives to bear so that the market obeys some semblance of traditional economic laws, even the simplest of those laws, it will produce wildly, I think, I think will produce comparatively wildly aligned stakeholders in a healthcare system that desperately needs some cohesion and some collaboration and some some unity, right? Because if you can, and that's really what AI Medica is trying to do too. We're trying to align the stakeholders' incentives in places where they're not aligned right now. Because it's as you align those incentives, deuce real value, right? And blockchain technology, you know, writ large has the to seriously align stakeholder incentives, right? If we can, if if we can incentivize um, patients to care about their data and to, you know, that's going to help them lead healthier lives. It's going to help them gain insights faster. It's going to help physicians treat their patients better. It's going to help health systems reduce waste, which will, you know, have a significant impact on the cost of overall healthcare, which, and everybody is going to benefit financially because the value of that data is significant. It can be distributed across all stakeholders who are involved, right? The patient who answers the, the questions on the survey that goes to the researcher who pays for those, the answers to those questions, boom, patient gets paid. Physician, uh, treats a patient and that data gets purchased for research at some point or rented for research, then great. A, a piece of that can come back to the physician. You know, a, a hospital produces an x-ray that goes into some, you know, becomes part of some study somewhere or something. And, you know, the data was purchased. Cool. The hospital system gets reimbursed for producing the x-ray or you know, gets or gets some value for producing an x-ray. You know, there, there's so many opportunities and options. I'm just barely scratching the surface here, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, something that we talked about earlier in that healthcare data, our healthcare data must be seen as an investment in our future. Well, you know, many people, they monitor their financial statements and bank accounts and make sure that things are looking good there, but we're not, they're not doing that necessarily for their healthcare. And I think if we can make that shift where our health data becomes an investment, I think more people will start to pay attention. So I think, you know, that's a really interesting um, way to look at it. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, like you said, many are working on this. It's not easy. Definitely you and I are in a complex space here, but it's worthwhile. I'm excited about it. And, you know, you made some really great insights and comments today. And I really appreciate all of that. I have a few more questions and then we can kind of wrap up. And just to kind of learn about AI Medica a little bit more, what are you planning for the rest of 2020? So we'll go live this summer. St. Luke's. And we're really excited to continue to work with them and really get a good, we're, we're very, I've really married the academic rigor of my PhD with lean startup methodology, which means we do, you know, we work really hard to produce super simple initially, test really hard and iterate really fast, right? And so in combining that test iteration speed with the academic rigor allows us to make insights very quickly and produce knowledgeable insights about how our tools are valuable and how they need to adjust. And so this summer, we're really excited to work with St. Luke, iterate quickly to understand the value of the tools and to uh, understand how they impact health systems and these different stakeholders, you know, physicians and patients. And so that's a huge piece of this project that we're working on is to get that data produced so that we can go out and, and and find other health systems to work with and, and show other health systems the value of the tools that we're creating. We're also fun. Do you know, like at St. Luke's, um, like how many providers are at St. Luke's one? And like, you know, just to give the audience a sense of how many people, or how many providers will start to use your product potentially this summer? Yeah, 10, 10 hospitals, they have 1600 providers. We'll probably go 
live in production with as a subset of that group, you know, to, to test and 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 do feedback. And, and that's probably where we'll do some of that, some of that initial validation work that I was talking about, but you know, and intend to keep moving forward as we keep hitting milestones and providing value. So yeah, six six, but it's it's the biggest health system in Idaho. So sixteen hundred physicians, ten hospitals. Cool. Thanks for that. Is there a book that was very influential? Or what's your most influential book that you've read? Yeah, so I'm going to give you two. I, I you know, I, I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and if I hadn't read the Book of Mormon, I wouldn't have served that mission. So I have to say, the most influential book was was, was is, is the Book of Mormon. In a more secular vein, I'd say Crucial Conversations. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but I am familiar with it. I forgot. I love that book. It's 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 proved such a valuable one of those valuable reads that helps identify moments of conversations when the stakes change and how to adjust to value one. That's a good one. Good. Uh, good. Thanks for sharing that. What are your thoughts? And this is since you're an AI machine learning enthusiast, I want to ask, what are your thoughts about the singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, according to uh, Ray Kurzweil? Yeah, you know... I'll admit I'm not paying super close attention. I remember Y2K and as a kid, I thought that would be pretty cool if all the computers freaked out. We had a semi Armageddon or something, you know, I was now as an adult, I realized that probably wouldn't have been so cool. But like Y2K, I suspect that 2045 will wave as it passes us by. Fair enough. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? As a general rule, I'm not a huge fan of things being implanted in my body. I guess it would depend on what the purpose was for maybe as like a i'm sure my wife would love to implant one as a location tracker just the <laughs> or something like that I, I don't know or a pacemaker yeah. i guess i'd be okay to have one put in my heart yeah that's fair and the question's pretty general too because you could talk about chips in your wrist for payments and identity or you can talk about you know chips that monitor chemical composition of your blood and then inject insulin or whatever you want into it in the chips future that make me perpetually have to get frisked at airports because there's metal in my body <laughs> <laughs> right right but you know that's fair how do you like to stay active or exercise i i love to play basketball i'm a, I'm a big basketball you're six fan. five so that makes sense <laughs> it's sometimes almost ability than it is a, a boon but but it does help on rebounds and things but I, yeah i know i i love to play basketball but i also i walk in the mornings and i do tai chi i've been into yoga i picked up yoga while i was in southeast asia <clears throat> so i try and i try not to stay bored with exercise fair enough yeah and you got the celtics in the finals now too i don't know if you're following that yet. very closely yes mm-hmm. i assume you're a i assume you're a celtics fan Celtics fan, yeah. We're pretty was, excited here for it. I was very surprised when they took game one. We'll see what happens. I'm excited for it. I think, yeah, we'll, we won't have to go into it now. But Jordan, I mean, thanks so much for this conversation. We talked a lot about many different things, including Web3, EHRs in detail. I really appreciate your insight, you know, your background, your expertise on this topic. So I just want to thank you again. And any final takeaways for the This was a pleasure, Ray. Thank you for having me on the show. I love talking about this stuff. If if you're, I guess for everyone listening, if you're interested and, and as geeky about this as I am, I'd, I'd love to connect. Feel free to reach out. We are fundraising right now. So always looking for, for leads there. And yeah, this, is, this was great. Thanks for having us on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. 
check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.